Glad for all of you being here tonight. Let's dive into the Word of God. I've got a little teaching from 2 Corinthians. We're going to take right up where we left off in verse 14 of chapter 6. Lord, thank you for your Word. Let it resonate in our hearts tonight. Teach us your ways, Lord, that we might be found faithful in our daily living. And how we think, the decisions we make, Lord. Um, how we connect and uh, with you and with the people in our lives, Lord, help us to, um, to really graft in tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're going to take on verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. That's five verses tonight. You think we can do five verses? All right, two of you do. Okay, good. Verse 14 says, Paul says to the church at Corinth, the Christians at uh, Corinth, he says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? Now, I want to tell you that if you don't know God's word on this issue and the heart of God's word, um, I've encountered many people in my life who really don't like this Bible verse. They really don't care about it. They, they almost feel like this scripture is anti-God's plan. And I believe it deserves for us to know and understand this because in the times that we're living in, we need to understand verses like this and we have to study them because at first glance, we don't get everything that's going on there. This seems to be a reference to the law in Deuteronomy 22.10 that says you must not plow with an ox and a donkey harnessed together. I learned this from the King James Version when I was a young man. And the way we learned it was, do not be unequally yoked together. This is not meant to forbid associating and conversing with unbelievers, since that would be totally impractical and would require believers to leave this world. For you to not interact or talk with unbelievers at all, it, it'd be hard to live in this world, wouldn't it? So, there, there are many natural and civil relationships existing among people that are necessary. In your outline, as we start here, this is not to be understood as a command to avoid entering into marriage with unbelievers. Now, now hang on. Uh, let me get to the rest of this here. Since the apostle had conceded such marriages to be lawful in his first epistle... We also know that there are times when people are married, one becomes a believer and the other one's not yet in a believing relationship with Jesus. They may say they believe in God and they may actually believe in God, but when we use the correct terminology of believe, that means believe so much that it changes our direction, it changes our mind and we begin to serve the Lord and walk in his footsteps. And so um, there are there are many things to be understood about this. So I, I wanted to just be careful for one moment. There, there must be something else on, um, Reuben, because I hear an echo that I'm not used to hearing. I'm not sure what it is. And maybe you all don't hear it. If you don't, I'll just wipe it out of my mind. All right? So um, they, they may be lawful. You left your monitor on. Okay. And I'm extra sensitive to everything. 
I'm sorry. All right. I wanted to blame it on Reuben. No, I didn't. Um, they may be lawful, but this type of marriage is not recommended. Believers would do well to avoid such an unequal yoke. So in other words, when you're a believer and you're wanting to get married, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the recommendation here is don't marry an unbeliever. It's not wise. It's not a good plan. Many times, such a, in your outline, such a union will expose the believer to many temptations, distresses, and sorrows, which usually occur in such marriages. So, though this is not a command, I'm continuing in your outline here, it's a strong warning. That's the way I understand the Bible here. It's not a command, but it is a very strong warning. If anything is referred to in particular, it's that we as believers are not to join with unbelievers in acts of idolatry. We have um, something that we try to uphold here at Calvary, and that is we really want to see people that love each other to get married. And uh, if they're committed to one another, probably not have too long of, a, uh, of an engagement. Just go ahead and get married. And if you're going to put some money into it, put the money in, more money into the marriage and the plan after the wedding day than the wedding day. I've watched people put all their money and everything they can hawk into a wedding day and not think one minute about a married life. And so we really try to uh, encourage good, good practices around here. And we love to get a hold of people that are wanting to be married and, and say, hey, let's do it God's way. God's way is a good plan. For any of you that are here tonight, maybe didn't do it God's way, God saw you through it, you can say, amen, pastor, preach it. Tell them to do it God's way. His way is better. And so from the first epistle, it looks as if some, let me go to 2 Corinthians six sixteen for just a moment. Um, and go to this verse of our text. And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And from the first epistle, it looks as if some in this church had joined with idolaters in such practices. I want to go back for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. So my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. It's probable that these words are meant to discourage Christians from having fellowship with unbelievers in anything sinful, criminal, whether in life, daily practice of living and how we live, or conversation even, or worship. We have to be careful with our association with unbelievers. It seems that there were some at Corinth who might have been uncaring about whether they married a heathen or a Christian. They, they didn't find that to be important. And Paul is trying to give them and, and heed to them good warning. It seems they were uncaring whether they chose their intimate friends among the worshipers of Aphrodite or of Christ. 
The apostle feels bound to protest. The Greek word for unequally yoked together is not found elsewhere in the Bible that I can find and was probably coined by Paul to give expression to his thoughts. Men men and women are unequally yoked together when they have no common bond of faith in God. For example, Christians with Jews or godly people with ungodly people, spiritual with carnal. And the only reward Paul wanted from the Corinthians was conduct in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul speaks to this, which they were, these Corinthians were in the habit of doing that brought damage to their Christian profession. Now, I'm going to talk about some things here that... um, will probably be a challenge to us in some ways, and I hope that's the case in a good way. Let me read it again now as we've talked about it for a moment. Would would you let me read it again? Put it on the screen, 614, our first verse in our text. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? The righteous are justified by what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and must be careful who they come into partnership or agreement with. Well, I I believe I can win them to the Lord by coming into... You see, it's one thing to talk to somebody. It's one thing to share your faith and to share the good news of the gospel and to share your story. It's another thing to be a companion or a friend or get involved in some kind of relationship with somebody. That's a whole other thing. How many of you could say the pull of this world is pretty strong? I used to tell Reese and Riley, I said, if you ever decide to run with the wrong crowd, you are the wrong crowd. You become the wrong crowd. Somebody said, and I don't find this per se exactly word for word in the Bible, um, but it it really helped me understand that that the, the phrase went, and there are some scriptures in Proverbs that come close to this, but, you know, such as good, corrupts good character. What is it? Um, bad, huh? Bad company, that's the word I couldn't find. Bad company corrupts good conduct. You know, and, and uh, when we, I've just watched it too many times that when people begin to dabble off into relationships with people who are not seeking God as a friend, a co-worker, or somebody, and they get involved very much at all, it's not usually good. Wickedness means unrighteousness. It's the condition of those who live in unbelief of a risen Lord and Savior. Light signifies the condition of a man in Christ. Look at Ephesians 5.8 on the screen. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. And 1 Thessalonians 5.5, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. Now, folks, I want to be careful here because I'm dabbling into things and it's hard to say it all in one little teaching, but... 
we're not better than anyone else. We don't posture ourselves in front of people that don't know the Lord and are not walking in the light or that are in darkness and are far from God. I mean, you're either in God's kingdom or you're not. It's heaven or hell. You're saved or you're not saved. But we're not better than anyone else. We're, if you're saved, it's not because of how awesome you are. It's because of how awesome he is and he reached down and saved you. You can't take credit. We can't take credit for our salvation. No man can boast. So we're not better than, we don't posture ourselves as better. But we do have to understand It's very difficult to have fellowship, light with darkness. And you're either in the light or you're in the dark. Right? And so what partnership or communion can there be between persons who are so unlike from each other? What could be more different than light and darkness? Nature has divided them from each other. In nature, they're incompatible with one another. Yet those who are in the light and have become the righteousness of God in Christ were once in darkness and unrighteousness, but the Lord saved them, the Bible says, and made them new. He brought them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This principle should not be extended to a total avoiding contact with unbelievers. Don't hear me say that. Paul determined when he said in 1 Corinthians 5, let me read it to you. We have it on the screen. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. You say, Pastor, you read this a couple of teachings ago. I know, and I'm reading it again because we need to hear it again. Or is abusive or drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Pastor, are you saying that if there's someone in our church who claims to be a believer in Christ Jesus and they're indulging in sexual sin or they're abusive or they're a drunkard or they're cheating people that I should not eat with them? No, I'm not saying that. The Bible is. Well, let's tear that page out. No, can't tear it out. It's the Bible. Verse 12, it isn't my responsibility, Paul says, to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And somebody said, well, we're not supposed to judge anybody. Hmm. It is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Boy, that messes up some theology, don't it? 
God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. If we're going to do this right as a church body, this is not easy. How many know if we practice any kind of church discipline this because not because we're cruel, not because we're mean, but because we truly love them and want to see their soul saved and want them to see the error of their ways and call them to repentance, that they are a reproach to the kingdom of God, calling themselves a believer and living in sexual sin, living as a drunkard, living as a cheater, and calling themselves a Christian and being a part of our family here and living in sin, living a dual life. Are we more loving to turn the other way and just let them keep on and hope things work out? Or are we more loving as pastors and elders to pull them to the side and love them enough to say, I love you and I want to help you with the restoration path to get back on track, get into the household of faith, repent, turn from your wicked ways and serve the Lord and we're right there to help you And if you won't do that, you can't be here. Which way is more loving? Which way is more caring? Is it better to care for their flesh and their mood and their emotion and what makes them feel good? Is it better in the long run to care for their eternal soul? Well... I don't know any churches practicing this. If that's the case, that'd be sad. But I'd say that's wrong. Every real church that is obeying God's word is or is willing to practice God's word. It's a tough word, isn't it? It's tough. It's it's the word of God. I taught this not too long ago to a handful of people because there was a struggle going on behind the scenes. And we had a lot of families that loved me and went along with the Bible. We had somebody I love dearly that did not put up biblically any argument with me at all. In fact, I tried my best to say, show me where I'm wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to repent. I'm willing to get in front of this congregation and say, I'm wrong. Show me. And they couldn't. And they left. And I cried. And I ached, and I had to get over it and give it to God. I I thought this, Glenn and Jeff and Nick and I have talked, and Daniel, and the elders, we've talked about this. We've prayed about it. What kind of pastors and elders are we if we let everyone walking in our doors lead the church by their fleshly 
desires. <laughs> I told the Lord many times, Lord, I just want to love people, preach a simple gospel, kiss babies, and go home. But when you get involved in people's lives and you care about people, your life gets messy. It's messy. I have people all my life say, I want to be a pastor someday. And I'm like, oh. People ask me not too long ago, Pastor, how do you, do you like being a pastor? I said, I wouldn't trade it for a million dollars. The calling of God on my life, I wouldn't trade for nothing. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I live somewhere in that. It's all good. It's all good, isn't it? Aren't you glad God's got you? We move on to the next verse, verse 15. Oh, we're cooking. Hmm. What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? <laughs> oh, Paul can't give it up, can he? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? Isn't this strong language? The word harmony denotes the unison or harmony produced by musical instruments. The idea is that there's as much that is dissonant. Pastor Jeff, explain dissonant in your musical terminology. How would, how would you explain that to somebody? Notes that clash with one another. They don't. Yes. Yeah, there are certain notes that you can't play together. They crash into each other. And Paul uses this as an illustration here. That there's dissonant between Christ and the devil. As, there's as much dissonant as there is between the instruments of music that produce jarring sounds. The word devil, or also Belial, B-E-L-I-A-L, -L, is a Hebrew word and is only used... In this place in the New Testament, but it's often used in the Old Testament. It's a name of the devil or Satan and refers to the devil who has cast off the yoke of obedience to God and is unprofitable, toxic, and hurtful to people. Christians are to be separate from the wicked world as Christ was separate from all the feelings, purposes, and plans of Satan himself. Jesus had no participation in them. He formed no union or bond with them. And that's the way it should be with followers of Jesus. I I'm standing up here tonight and saying, we are not to form a union or a bond with an unbeliever. Can we share the gospel? Yes. Can we be nice? Yes. Can we get along with them at work the best we can? Yes. There is a difference from that to forming a union or a bond with somebody. Christ had no fellowship with the devil. He talked to him once in a while. I remember once he said, get behind me. But no fellowship. Therefore, we ought to have no unnecessary communion with those who show themselves to be of the father, the devil. Now, I know that sounds hard, and they may not realize that's what they're, who they are. 
We need to understand it. The believer's portion is found in Colossians 1.12. Always thanking the Father, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. How many of you are here tonight, don't raise your hand, would love for all of your kids and teenagers to to really understand this tonight when they go to school and when they associate with people in their lives, would you like them to know this and understand it? An unbeliever's portion will be in the lake of fire. They're governed by different principles. They have different motives, are looking for different rewards, are heading to a different destiny. The believer, therefore, should not select their partner in life or chosen companions and friends from that group, but from those whom they fundamentally in agreement with and have common faith to grow in. Well, I can't help it. I love them. God put a love in my heart for them, and I believe if I marry that guy, I'm going to win him over to the Lord. I can't tell you how many young couples I said, hey, this... This young lady is madly in love with this guy. And he has as much spiritual insight as that rug. And I'm saying to her, hey, this is the best it's going to be. He's putting his best foot forward right now. It's downhill from here. Back off, let him and God figure it out, and don't make him think that you're on the hook if he gets saved. Let him work out his own salvation with fear and trembling, and then if somewhere down the road God puts it together, so be it, but, but stop it. And some listen to me, and some don't. What do you do, pastor? Pray for them. Love them. And try to be there for them to pick up the pieces later. I don't know what else to do. All right, next verse, 16. And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Paul asked the question, what association or covenant agreement can the saints who are the temple of God have with idols? Now this is uh, interesting to me. The sense is that for Christians to mingle with the sinful world, to partake of their pleasures and pursuits is detestable in the sight of God. If we go back to 1 Corinthians again in chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. It's implied that the Christians are themselves the temple of God. Do you realize that if you're a child of God here tonight, do you, do you comprehend, do I fully comprehend that if you're a child of God tonight, you are the temple of God. He dwells in you. 
It would be as absurd for us to mingle with unbelievers inappropriately as it would be for us to, you know what, what would you think if I erected up here tonight on this altar before I taught a pagan God and put one up here on the altar just before I preached and there it was when you came in was a pagan God on our altar? What would you think? I mean... Think about it. This is strong language that the Apostle Paul is using right here, isn't it? Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in us as a spirit of regeneration, as a spirit of sanctification who sets us apart for his purposes. A spirit of faith, a spirit of adoption. We've been adopted into the true vine. We are his. We are his children. We're the temple of the living God. His spirit dwells in every Christian's heart, which is the distinguishing result of the new covenant. So Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah. I've been there. Similarly, the church is built upon a rock, higher than man, higher than the angels, higher than the heavens and out of reach of men and devils who would want to hurt and destroy it. Solomon's temple was magnificent. It was overlaid, the Bible says, with pure gold, expressing the internal glory of Christ's church, which is all glorious within, having the Lord himself as the glory in the midst of her, as beautiful and magnificent as was Solomon's temple. That was a foretaste of who we are to become, the temple of God. So we have to be careful who comes into the temple. The church of Christ may be compared to the temple also for the firmness of its foundations and pillars. Christ is the foundation of his church. The temple was holy, being set apart for the worship and service of God as the church of Christ is sanctified by the Spirit of God. Sanctified means being set apart for the purposes of God. It's called the temple of God because it was built by him and it's where he dwells. Our God has life in himself and gives both spiritual and eternal life to his people. Now those who are unbelievers have no life in them. You see, I'm not trying to be crude. I'm not trying to be cruel. But do you realize that an unbeliever has no life. Well, are you telling me they're dead? Well, you know, one, one person said they're dead men walking is what they are. They, they're, they're dead to a relationship with God. Their spirit is not, their spirit's alive, but it's not alive to a relationship with God. They're dead to God. That's what an unbeliever is. He's dead to the presence and the power and the majesty of our God. That's why when God reached down and gave you faith to believe and you made a choice to repent and believe and confess him with your mouth according to Romans 10:9, somewhere in that framework and I don't understand it completely, but God reached down and with the power of faith that he gave you and the power of confession that you have and and you repenting because you saw your sin that put Jesus on the cross You became the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. 
Your eternal position was forever changed. He pulled you out of darkness into his glorious light. You're no longer a sinner. You're a saint who sins. But your root is not in sin anymore. You belong to God. You don't belong to the devil anymore. You belong to God. Do you understand that when he saved you, a lot of awesome things happened? And those who are unbelievers have no life in them. That's why we're here, to pray for them, to share the gospel, to plead with them, to give their heart to Jesus. Who lives in you, in this verse, implies when used with reference to Christians that the Holy Spirit would abide in them. Romans 8, Colossians 3, 16, 2 Timothy 1, 14. This will be the way while we're sojourners here, we're sojourners here, we're all passing through, onto heavenly glory, as God is said to walk in a tent or a tabernacle. That's why these bodies are, the, we're the temple of God, but this body is just a tent. Why? Because it's not a permanent dwelling place. He's, we're going to have a new body. So this is the temple of God until he returns. And when he returns, we're going to get new bodies fit for eternity. I call it my extraterrestrial suit. Fit for eternity. And we will abide in him and he will abide in us. How does that work? I can't figure it out. But I believe it. We're traveling through the wilderness to Canaan. As the Israelites traveled through the wilderness to cross over Jordan into their Canaan land, we're traveling through the earth, waiting for the coming of the Lord to cross over, to be with him and rule and reign forever with the Lord. In the same way he walks in his temple, the true church, which are his people, why they are traveling home to the heavenly Canaan. Our God walks among his people. He was, present among the, he was present among the Jews by a public manifestation of his presence. Jesus became a man. A symbol. The Shekinah. He is present with Christians by the presence and guidance of his Holy Spirit in them according to the new covenant. Let me go to Another part here, verse 16, I will be their God and they will be my people. As the Jews were chosen by God in the old covenant, now Christians are his special people loved by him with an unusual love and on whom he imparts unusual or peculiar blessings. I would say it like this. We're not weird. Well, some of us are. But we're peculiar. Meaning we're different. When the Lord saved us, we become different people. There's a parent-child relationship intended here. 2 Corinthians 6.18 And I will be your father, you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now let's go back to verse 17 for a moment. Therefore come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. So I want to answer two questions here to end this teaching tonight. Number one, why should they come out from among them? 
Answer, because believers are the temple of the living God, which makes them a habitation for the Most High. They are a special people. Babylon, in the scriptures, is the emblem of whatever is proud, whatever is arrogant, wicked, and opposed to God. That's what Babylon is talking, is about. And Paul applies these words here with great beauty and force to illustrate the duty of Christians in separating themselves from a vain, idolatrous, and wicked world. So the second question is, who is the them in this verse? Answer, first and foremost, they are unbelievers. But Paul is not advocating absolute separation, but abstinence from any kind of familiarity. I have a hard time saying that word, familiarity. Is that close? In John's vision, he wrote Revelations 18.4. Look at it. I heard another voice calling from heaven, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. Our text is an exhortation by Paul to believers to forsake the company and conversation of the people of the world. In many cases, they were even called to forsake their own people. Do you realize that in the New Covenant, Jesus, Jesus even told people to forsake their father's house? To leave their native country? To seek a heavenly one? I'm telling you, you all think you'd like to meet Jesus, and I want to meet him, and we're going to meet him someday if we're saved. But he's not this Mr. Nice guy that we sometimes think about. How many know if he talked to you tonight, if he talked to me, he might share a couple of things we don't want to hear? How many believe Jesus would be honest with us? How many believe that Jesus would reach past the surface and get to the heart of the issue? <laughs> he would, wouldn't he? In many cases, they were called to forsake things they loved. What is it? Di didn't he tell one guy, let the dead bury the dead? You go back and study that. Jesus was helping him discern where his priorities were. What is it that Paul's readers are to separate themselves from? In your outline, several things come to mind. One, Gentiles. <clears throat> As the people of God are a separate people in the election and redemption and the effectual calling and ought to be so in their conduct and conversation. Secondly, they ought to separate themselves from all superstition and from the evil customs and manners of the world. Verse 17 says, don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. Christians were to avoid all unholy contact and have no close connection with an idolater or an unholy person. In other words, we're to endeavor to walk in purity and holiness. Now to wrap up, your outline's done. These words may be interpreted. I want to just make a closing comment here. What I've said tonight may, be, may seem like I'm too rigid by those who make it a ban of all commerce or company with such people. 
But we're not to enter into communion or fellowship with these types of people because, like I said earlier, the pull of this world is so strong. Verse 17 ends with this statement, and I will welcome you. The Greek implies that God will receive us to himself, into his house, into his family. He will be a father to us as his adopted children, loving us, caring, providing for us, allowing us access and close intimacy with him. I'm going to say it. This cannot be done until we become separate from an idolatrous and wicked world. He said, be ye separate as I am separate. I'm not telling you to run out here tonight and call your buddy that's not a believer and say, we're done. Call me when you get saved. I mean, we got to be careful here. Tactful. A heart of love and care for people that are unbelievers. But as sure as I'm standing up here tonight... I know in my heart for some reason that God put this message so strong in my heart and I believe it's because there's one or two or five or people, maybe more, that just need to know you can't dance with the devil and live as a child of God. Somehow the devil sold us a bill of goods to think that we can dabble with the cares of this world and everything's going to be all right. And folks, I think Paul gives us strong words tonight. I think there are some of you that God's going to put on your heart. You, you need to be careful. There is probably people in this room that are emotionally connected with people that you can be kind and friendly and nice, but no longer be emotionally connected with that person anymore. You've got to draw a line. And if you'll make a decision for God and you'll pray about it, God will strengthen you to live the way he's called us to live. The association of believers with the world should resemble that of angels. When angels have been sent to earth with a message from heaven, how many know there's angels on assignment? And when angels get sent by God to the earth to send a message, they do their dutiful, is that a word? And joyfully, they do their duty with joy. And I believe they can't wait to get back home into the presence of God. May that be our heart's desire. Well, Pastor, 
I'm not as comfortable in the presence of God. I, I wished I was. Well, just keep getting into his presence. And before long, you won't want to be out of it. In his presence, there is everything you need. Amen. I love you all. Goodbye. Dismissed.